ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Deepfakes generated by AI are absolutely everywhere and it's getting much harder to spot what's real and what's fiction. The battle to contain generative AI has been slow going. Illustrated again this week when attempts to block sexually explicit AI images of pop star Taylor Swift proved almost futile. Anyone from US President Joe Biden, Donald Trump, billionaire Gina Reinhart and businessman Dick Smith have been victims of deep fakes. It's already happening. AI devices are being used to deceive people. Deep fakes use AI generated audio and video to smear reputations speak for spreads fake news and commit fraud. With AI, fraudsters can take three second, and you all know this, three second recording of your voice. I've watched one of me on a couple of times. I said, when the hell did I say that? The pop megastar Taylor Swift has become the latest victim of AI misuse after extremely graphic and suggestive images created by AI circulated on social media. Today, Gina Reinhart, Dick Smith and Andrew Twiggy Forrest have teamed up to create an investment platform. In total, we have invested in its development about $1 billion and such costs are fully justified. People are happy. No, it's not me. It's a complete fraud. They look at Dick Smith saying something, they believe it and then they lose their money. It's terrible. Businessman Dick Smith today in Australia Wide, the use of deep fakes to scam Australians. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. Andrew Forrest is one of Australia's most wealthy people. He's a very recognisable figure in the world of business. What he says and the decisions he makes are keenly followed by many. Here he is earlier this month talking up the major expansion of his clean energy plans on the ABC's 7.30 programme. Certainly the biggest in Australia and just another wonderful turning point for every Australian to celebrate that we're moving to green and much more competitive, inexpensive energy than we've ever had before. Reliable and cheap just to argue with the cost of living which everyone is suffering. So when Andrew Farris pops up on Facebook, spruiking a new investment opportunity, it gets some attention. Today you will be richer than you ever imagined. I'm talking about life-changing money, and you won't believe how incredibly simple it is. Today, I want to give you the chance of a lifetime by joining me and my team as a partner in the world's smartest stock and cryptocurrency trading software. Even if you have no experience, don't worry. Because as you're about to see... That's WA billionaire Andrew Forrest appearing in a video on social media. You might have to ask, or is it? It sounds uncannily like him, like Twiggy, but is it really him? And as you might have guessed, the answer is no. So what is going on here? This is a deep fake video and it's a very convincing fake. These videos are becoming increasingly sophisticated and increasingly common. Dan Halpin is a private cyber investigator at CyberTrace and they're the ones who identified this new video. Here he is speaking to ABC Perth presenter Nadia Mitsopoulos. Now, your analysts are trained to, to spot these fakes. So we're not. Was it very easy for your analyst to spot this as a fake? It was more so from the content. What, uh, what Andrew was apparently saying in the video is, uh, is a well-designed script that we've 
we've seen many variations of this before and uh and more so recently, we also were responsible for identifying the um, the, the, the similar version, whether it involved Dick Smith and, and Gina Reinhardt, uh, along with Andrew Forrest um, and Alison Langdon as well. So it's all very similar, but the the thing that really uh, confirmed this for us was when we followed the leads or, or the links in the, the Facebook advertisement, uh, it led to the same source, which we're aware of is uh, Quantum AI. They're the... Uh, the brand that's responsible for all these uh, uh, well-received or uh, very obvious deepfakes. As you've confirmed, it's not him. For those who are not familiar with these deepfakes, how do they do it? What do they do? What does this quantum AI do? Quantum AI is purely a vehicle for gathering potential victim contact details. So they're trying to entice individuals to quickly sign up using the online form, and those details are then on-sold to scam syndicates around the world as qualified leads because they have uh, qualified the individual because they have shown an interest in investment. Uh, and, and generally that leads on to cryptocurrency-backed uh, fraud, fraud events. And um, once someone has filled out a quantum AI contact form, they will then quite quickly be phoned from uh, from anywhere up to 100 different scam syndicates trying to scam them. Dan Halpin, who is a private cyber investigator at CyberTrace, so beware. The ABC has approached Andrew Forrest, but we're told he's overseas at the moment. He's made it very clear in the past that he's unhappy with the social media companies who allow these scams to flourish. Two years ago, he launched legal action against Facebook, alleging they were criminally reckless in failing to take down ads. And that legal action is still making its way through the courts. It's been incredibly rapid how quickly this AI stuff is moving. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. News this week that the rate of inflation is showing signs of falling will be welcome relief to many Australians struggling with the cost of living. But it's likely to take some time for consumers to notice any change to their weekly grocery bill after months of skyrocketing prices. And it's some of the poorest people in the country, those living in remote communities, who've been paying the highest price. Our reporter in Alice Springs, Miles Holbrook-Walk, visited a remote community in Central Australia to see how locals were coping and he joins me now. Now, Miles, tell me where you are and what the situation was there for residents trying to do their food shopping. Sinead, the place I went is a community called Santa Teresa. It also goes by an Eastern Arundel name, Ginger Porter. It's home to about 600 people and it's only an hour by road out of Alice Springs except much of that road is unsealed for a long way. So it's a two-hour round trip to and from Alice Springs. It's a largely Eastern Arundel community. But, you know, as remote communities go, it's not that far from an urban centre, which is what I guess makes it interesting is that even though it's not too far from an urban centre, prices are still being noticed at a significantly higher rate. And I spoke with one woman, Annalisa Young. She's got four kids, a partner and her mother at her home in Ginger Porter, and she's still paying an extraordinary amount. She even told me in some instances where a shop would usually cost her two or $300, which is not cheap by any means in Alice Springs, Double that is what she would be expecting to pay if she went to the shop. Here's Annalisa. You know, when I know shop in town, I know there's a big difference. You know, I can feed the kids, feed the family 
more and it lasts you know up until the next payday whereas in the store here we can only get so much and so Annalisa Young there not just talking about what a shop might cost for her personally but for other people as well particularly if they're looking for products like meat it's really tricky and fresher produce too is kind of part of the reason why she's decided to take that extraordinary step of a two-hour round trip just to save a bit of money. So what are the alternatives for someone like Annalisa who's struggling to pay for groceries? Well, for someone like Annalisa, she's at the point where she's still comfortable doing the drive into town at Alice Springs, going to your kind of more typical, uh, larger uh, grocery shops. But we are seeing Food Bank is taking more and more people through their doors. In fact, uh, when I visited their food bank site in Alice Springs, Michael Hutch, the regional manager, he mentioned that they're seeing more people come through the door, but they're also seeing more people come from further away from Alice Springs. We can see many more customers coming from more remote areas, taking the advantage of being here in Alice Springs and shop and then uh, take advantage of our fruit and veg and bread to take it with them into the communities. So how far are people driving to get to Food Bank? In some instances, Sinead, it's in the hundreds of kilometres. Food Bank talks to this idea of people coming in, not just to do shopping for themselves or their own family, but, you know, for several families, because not everyone will have a car in these very isolated locations. So then it becomes more like a food run rather than just a run-of-the-mill shop. And we're talking about places like uh, Uchu, which is to the west of Alice Springs, Yundamu, which is several hours as well on Walpuri country. So this is, uh, you know, a lot further than... And, you know, just the idea of going to town. This is a, a major trip that can take, you know, most of the day in some instances. Miles, you visited Santa Teresa, but do you have any sense of how common this problem is in remote communities across the country? What we do know is it's hard to tell without going to each individual remote store what pricing looks like. But what we know from food banks data is that more people are going up to a magnitude. The growth in some food bank sites is up to 200% is what Food Bank has told us, which is extraordinary when you're thinking about it. And that's in states like Victoria, but also WA with sprawling centres as well. And I think it's worth pointing out too here that people who are living in the most remote locations in Australia often, and ABS data draws us out, their median income is much lower. The participation in the labour force is also lower, even though unemployment tracks a little bit higher, but the real gap is about how many people are even looking for a job in some of these places and uh, would even have a job to look for in these communities. So it's a a matter of you do have some of the people who are in the lowest economic status possible uh, having to deal with exorbitant costs for their staple goods. What A few economists will tell you, and indeed one I spoke to, Professor Chris Fleming, he speaks to this idea that essentially the more remote you are, the more pronounced this problem becomes because of how far they are from major ports where freight and goods come into. So it can get worse the further out you are, which I suppose isn't that surprising. But the other key point he makes is that in terms of incomes, the people who live in these more remote locations are often likely to earn a lot less money than people living in urban centres. And as such, you've got people having to make tough choices around what they spend their money on. Their incomes, um, certainly compared to capital cities, are relatively low. So you can get trapped in this cycle where um, you're spending so much of your income on, on the sheer basics that you have to forego other things, perhaps healthcare, perhaps schooling costs and so forth. Um, and so there's a real knock-on effect. 
That's Professor Chris Fleming, Miles Holbrook Walk in Alice Springs. Thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Cheers. Thanks, Sinead. ABC Australia Wide. Country people can't be discriminated against. Not in Chermit. They were homesick, you know, poor little lumps. A flood is a flood and a fire is a fire and a drought is a drought. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide on ABC Radio. Surfing is a big part of the Australian identity, as is surf life-saving. New data from Victoria shows for surfers the two often come hand in hand, as surfers are often the first ones on the scene when someone gets in trouble in the ocean. Data from La Trobe University found Victorian surfers help someone in trouble about 92,000 times each year. In the community of Gippsland, the role surfers could have in ocean safety is top of mind as there have been several beach drownings there last month. Our reporter, Georgia Lenton-Williams, begins this story talking to Luke Thomas, a surfer from Kilconda in South Gippsland, who tried to save a man from drowning. We heard some some screaming and that was um, the sister of the, the poor bloke who passed away and so yeah, realised what was going on and um, I didn't have my board with me but I um, nicked across to get my mate's board, obviously came down and yes, paddled out and saw the his body was getting washed about so managed to get hold of his body and got him up onto a rock which is sort of in the middle of the rip and as I was sort of assessing him um, another bloke had come across swam across from the mainland to help me with him yeah so it was sort of a matter of trying to get him across Um, but yeah it was from what I could see from him it was yeah it was pretty much you know too late but you know you have that hope I guess that you know he might be still a chance and afterwards you go through go through it in your head if I had a rope or if I had this or that or you know got down there quicker if I had my own board and from what a lot of people have said it's pretty natural to sort of go through that and yeah think what you could have or should have done. Luke Thomas is one of many surfers in Victoria who has tried to rescue someone. Their deep understanding of the ocean as well as the boards they ride means they're often in a position to provide assistance. Data from La Trobe University shows surfers across the state help someone having difficulty in the water approximately 92,000 times each year. I spoke to Dr Alex Donaldson from La Trobe about the study and the significance of its findings. We, we asked a bunch of surfers to register their interest in participating in the survey. Every four weeks over a three-year period, we sent them a text which had a, a short survey embedded in it, just asking them if they'd been surfing and how often they'd been surfing and then how often they'd performed a couple of different safety activities when, when they went surfing. And those, those safety activities were providing advice to other people whether they performed some sort of board rescue and actually helped someone who was uh, having difficulty in the water and then thirdly, whether they performed any sort of CPR or first aid. We had close to 500 or over 500 surfers involved. What we essentially found was that 11 times for every thousand times somebody goes surfing, they provide help to somebody who is having difficulty in the water. Can you explain the difference that having safety training made to surfers and the likelihood of whether or not they would you know, attempt to rescue someone? We asked 
the participants in our survey if they had some sort of first aid qualification and then also if they had specifically got themselves a, a board rescue qualification because organisations like Surfing Victoria offer training for surfers in how to perform a board rescue. What we found was that surfers with first aid qualification were more likely to provide first aid advice than surfers who didn't have those qualifications. So that was nearly twice as, as um, twice as likely to provide that advice. They were also more likely to provide safety advice to, to someone who was in trouble in the water. But the really interesting one was that surfers who told us they had a board rescue surfing qualification were nearly three times as likely to provide first aid advice or actually, sorry, to perform first aid. They were more likely to provide safety advice and certainly more likely to help someone who was having trouble in the water. I also spoke to Liam Robertson from Surfing Victoria, the organisation that funded the La Trobe University research. He told me about the training program they run called Surfers Rescue 24-7. The aim of the program is to train up surfers in board rescue and CPR and first aid skills. Noting, I guess, that lifesavers do an incredible job, but they have limited resources. So the idea is that surfers surf all year round. They're generally at beaches that are unpatrolled. So why not use them as bystander lifesavers? To, to assist people when, when required. How many surfers roughly have, have been through that program? Yeah, we've had about um, between four and a half and 5,000 surfers go through the program since it was established seven or eight years ago. What kind of feedback do you normally hear from surfers after they've completed that training? Does it make them feel more confident when they're out in the water? The confidence level between before and after is, is massive, the difference. It teaches them how to perform a rescue safely. A lot of surfers will go to a rescue and it'll be, you know, a, a bit dangerous for them because they don't know what to do and it puts them at risk as well. I understand now the, the program is sort of running on donations, but previously it was funded by the state government. Can, can you sort of, ex, I guess, explain that, that timeline to me of, of the funding and the finances behind this program? We got some small pilot funding, yeah, as I said, six or seven years ago, and then uh, we got a, an election commitment from the, the government two elections ago, um, which allowed us for four years' worth of funding to, to run that program at full, full scale. Unfortunately, we didn't get a continuation of that funding, um, so the, the program as its full scale finished up in July last year. However, we have been able to secure a small amount of, of funding to to keep the program running at a very small level. Would you like to see the state government reinstate that that funding for the full program? Oh, look, of course. I think everyone would like to. And we're, we're really lucky that Play It Safe by the Water, which is the, the funding the funding arm that's, that's funding it at its current level, you know, has, has seen some value in the program and has chipped in some money to keep it going. We're always always talking to, to government and, and corporate partners, as I said, about greater funding to, to get the program out there across the state. Liam Robertson from Surfing Victoria chatting to our reporter Georgia Lenton-Williams from Gippsland. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio.
People power, as well as a fierce desire to ensure that almost a century of history is not lost, has helped save a rabbit hut. These tiny iron shacks are scattered across the more than 500k rabbit-proof fence in southern Queensland. And these were accommodation for the rabbit-proof fence boundary riders. When one was removed, historians and locals jumped at the chance to save others, as Kemi Maguire reports. Have you seen a rabbit hut before? Scattered across the iconic rabbit-proof fence here in southern Queensland, there's about nine of them or so. And some look not too much bigger than a thunderbox. But as locals have found, they're much more than just four walls. My name's Christine Turner and I'm president of the and District Historical Society. Well, it is a tiny little shack, galvanised iron building. They were built in like the 1940s, used as a accommodation for the rabbit fence boundary riders. They were only 12 foot by 9 foot. They had a concrete floor. They had a little iron stove recess guttering for the rainwater tank. They had to employ boundary riders to traverse the fence to check on its condition and uh, make any repairs. So each of these boundary riders, they had a considerable distance each day and up until the 1940s, they used to just camp in a tent. The little galvanised iron huts were actually quite an upgrade, absolute luxury. One hut near the rural town of Milmerin was removed by the local rabbit board. It had been burnt and left decrepit. As CEO of the Darling Downs and Morton Rabbit Board, Craig Magnuson Explains. Most are on reserve land. This one happened to be on a special lease, which was a little bit peculiar. As leases do, this one was coming up for renewal. Look, it hadn't been used for its purpose for camping. Yeah, so that's where we found ourselves faced with either try and preserve it, um, which was our first intention. It didn't really lend itself to that, so, yeah, unfortunately, it did get removed. But backlash quickly ensued online, and then all eyes were on another nearby hut called Grey's Gate, which has now been decided to be protected. When it was brought to our attention at the Historical Society, we realised that a considerable chunk of our, our local history had just left. We were quite upset about it. We experienced it as a real loss when that happened, and... So the Rabbit Hut um, CEO, Craig, he's really open to helping us keep the Grayscape Hut. That's where we're at at the moment. So this old higgledy shack will remain thanks to some local people power. But you may be surprised to know that the work against rabbits in Queensland hasn't changed all that much. A couple of them have been used recently and, and one still gets used today. Mostly, though with the greater reliability and, and better functionality of four-wheel drive vehicles and side-by-side buggies and those sorts of things, we, we don't have as much a need for our staff to camp out. One or two staff do regularly still camp out, but we have some more modern um, facilities like, you know, a donger, you know, kitted out with things that you'd uh, you'd expect in a modern workplace. The first, I think he was called a boundary rider back then too, was, you know, I think he was employed in about 1896 as the fence started to go up between Dalvane and Warra. The first inspector was employed about the same time and, and we still have an inspector to this day. And not so much boundary riders anymore, we call them patrol officers. We have about 10 staff that work on the fence and there are some construction and maintenance officers, but we have about half a dozen staff whose primary job is to every week run the entirety of, of their run, patch holes and place foot netting and do whatever else needs doing. Very much still in operation today. It's going to sound really silly, but it is the same type of work. 
Yeah, it is very similar work. Um, it's all about maintaining the integrity of the fence. So very much still about keeping rabbits out. Pressure from rabbits has changed over time, you know, with the advent of myxomatosis first and then the different Khaleesi viruses that have been released. Improvements in our understanding of rabbit ecology. It's still very much a case of there's rabbits on one side. There's a hell of a lot more rabbits on the dirty side in inverted commas than there is in the protected area. In, in essence, the work has remained the same. Really appreciate them reaching out and, and the opportunity it brings to, to help preserve some of our history. So we're very cognizant of the history of our organisation. We've been going in one form or another for 130 years. Yeah, a lot of infrastructure that's that's really challenging to maintain and justify continue spending money on. So any help we can get in that regard is very much welcome. A win. <laughs> you know, it's really important to preserve these old buildings um, and, you know, the, the riders' huts, the boundary riders' huts are just a, the perfect example if we want to honour and safeguard our cultural identity if we want to bear witness to the lives and experience of those people who use those buildings uh, we need to preserve them. Christine Turner from Milmerin in southern Queensland and thanks to Kimmy Maguire for that education I'm sure you probably learned something as did I and that is Australia wide for this week myself and the producer of the program Alex Hyman will be back with you next week I hope you have a lovely weekend Cheerio. ABC Listen.